Good morning, everyone. May the Lord continue to speak through his word uh, this morning. I'm going to read Ezekiel chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 19. And in my Bible, the title of the section is, The Glory of the Lord Leaves the Temple. Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire, and the appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house where the man went, when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the, from the cherub to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud. And the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. And when he commanded the man clothed in linen to take fire from between the whirling wheels, from between the cherubim, he went in and stood beside a wheel. And a cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim, and took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed in linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a human hand under their wings. And I looked, and behold, there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like sparkling barrel. And as for their appearance, the four had the same likeness, as if a wheel were within a wheel. When they went, they went, went in any of their four directions without turning as they went, but in whatever direction the front wheel faced, the others followed without turning as they went. And their whole body, their rims and their spokes, their wings, and the wheels were full of eyes all around, the wheels that the four of them had. As for the wheels, they were called in my hearing the whirling wheels. And everyone had four faces. The first face was, was the face of the cherub. And the second face was a human face. And the third, the face of a lion. And the fourth, the, fourth, the face of an eagle. And the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Chabar Canal. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. When they stood still, these stood still. And when they mounted up, these mounted up with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of the God, and the glory of, the God of Israel was over them. This is God's word. Please keep your Bibles open to Ezekiel 10, and let's pray as we look together at God's Word. Gracious Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. Would we be a people who listen, Lord? And as we think about the marvel of Christmas, the incarnation, your desire to dwell with us, would you give us ears uh, and eyes to see you and hear you more clearly this morning, Lord, as you make yourself known in your word, that, this, that these might not be 
mere words or mere knowledge, but a living, abiding relationship with you, God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as many of you know, Carissa and I have moved twice in the last two years, and before that, uh, seven times in our almost 15 years of marriage. And if there's one lesson that we've learned in moving so often, it's that it's not really the location or the stuff that makes a place home. It's the people who live there with you. Uh, That becomes clear, even clearer, I think, when a family member leaves home. So your child or maybe your older brother or sister goes off to college or takes a job and moves out on their own, and all of their stuff is still in the room, much to the parents' chagrin often. Uh, The posters are still on the wall. The trophies are still in the exact same place they were. There may even still be dirty socks in the corner. But the room feels sad, strangely quiet. It feels empty, not because there's nothing in the room, but because no one lives there. It's the presence of your family member that makes that room feel like home. And so in thinking about Ezekiel this morning, imagine that scenario, someone moving out. Uh, when it's not simply that someone has grown up and left the house, but instead that a family member has been driven from the house because of something you said or did. Adultery, abuse, betrayal, any number of things. And, And you walk into that room now, and it doesn't just feel sad and empty and strangely quiet. It is a monument to your failure. The Legos collecting dust on the shelf, the the family picture on the wall, they're all reminders, a testimony of whatever it is you did that drove that person away. Which you would think would result in a deep sense of guilt and shame and regret, but imagine yet again that all of that has happened and yet you are completely unfazed. You don't even notice the absence of your loved one, despite all of the signs. You just keep doing whatever it was you were doing that drove them away, oblivious to the pain that you've wrought, unaware of the consequences of your behavior or the destruction you've brought onto your home. You're all alone, not because there's nothing in the house, but because no one else lives there anymore. And you don't seem to care. That scenario is the story of God's rebellious people and the impact their rebellion has on God's temple in the book of Ezekiel. Because of Israel's unrepentant sin, God abandons his house. And they don't seem to realize or care that he's left. So for Advent this year, we have been stepping back to take kind of a a broader look at what it means for God to dwell with us. Uh, You know, we're told in Matthew 1 that when Jesus Christ was born, when the eternal Son of God 
took on human flesh, became incarnate. Uh, we were, were told in Matthew that when he did that, that he would be called Emmanuel, which in Hebrew means God with us. Christmas is all about God coming down to dwell in the presence of his people. That's what we're celebrating. But what we've tried to see so far in this series is that the idea that God wants to be with his people in a special way is not unique or new to Christmas. This is central to the entire biblical story, God's desire to be with us. Uh, We've seen it so far uh, at the beginning of the the story in the Garden of Eden uh, in Genesis, which was the first temple. And then it took the shape of the tabernacle and the actual physical building, the temple in Israel, in Jerusalem, which Pastor Bruce talked about last week. He gave us a sort of tour of what we called the old temple, the building that Solomon constructed that uh, became a kind of home for God. It was where the God of heaven came to dwell in a special way with his people on earth. For Israel, going up to the temple was like coming home. It was their true home. God's presence was where they belonged. But all of that unravels in the book of Ezekiel. We saw it unravel earlier with the garden, and now we're watching that same thing happen again. And we're invited to look in on that tragic turn of events through a vision that the prophet Ezekiel receives in chapters 8 through 11. Now, Ezekiel is not exactly a typical source for a Christmas sermon. Uh, In in fact, Ezekiel's not a typical source for any sermon, usually, because it's such a difficult book to understand. And, you know, just sitting uh, and listening through the scripture reading a little bit ago, our brains were, you know, turning to try and keep up with what in the world is being described there. It's it's hard to understand all of the imagery and what he's saying and what it means, Uh, but this is God's Word. It is in the Scriptures. It is for our good, for our edification, for God making Himself known to us. And it's particularly important for the question that we're asking. What does it mean for God to dwell with us? Uh, So we need to hear from Ezekiel this morning. Ezekiel uh, was a priest and a prophet. He was taken captive to Babylon along with uh, most of Jerusalem's ruling class around 597 before Christ. And this is during one of the lowest points in Israel's history. Israel had a few low points. This was pretty much as low as it got. What had been at at one point a glorious kingdom under David and Solomon in the land that God had promised Abraham with Jerusalem and the temple right there at the center of it, that had fractured into two kingdoms under Solomon's son, and then had gotten so bad that God handed his people over to their enemies as judgment for their sin. And for the southern kingdom, which included Jerusalem, that meant Babylon. As Isaiah prophesied in in Isaiah 39, verse 6, he says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And in Ezekiel's day, that process of Israel being deported to Babylon had already begun. 
Though Jerusalem and the temple were still standing at this point in the story, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had already taken two waves of captives out of Judah and into Babylon, including Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, and Ezekiel, who both came to Babylon during that second wave. And this is what God warned his people would happen if they betrayed his covenant, if they broke his covenant. He warned them that this is what would happen. Clear back in Deuteronomy 30 and Leviticus 26, and it's now unraveling. But despite all of these signs that that God is dealing with the, the sin of his people, he's disciplining them, despite all of the signs of that, the Israelites still aren't buying it. They're not convinced that they're really in trouble. Those with Ezekiel in Babylon are not convinced that things are going to get worse. And those who are still in Jerusalem are not interested in repenting. They're continuing to do the very things that caused the problems in the first place. And so God gives Ezekiel a vision, a heavenly perspective on what's really happening on earth. He gives him a vision to show Israel and us what's really going on among God's people, and how that impacts God's presence with his people. Now, we read earlier just from chapter 10, but really chapters 8 through 11 form one vision in Ezekiel. Uh, And it's a vision in which he's carried kind of mystically or in a vision from Babylon to the temple in Jerusalem. So if, if you still have your Bibles open, Flip back a page to chapter 8, verse 1. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, this is since they were brought to Babylon, I sat in my house, this is Ezekiel speaking, with the elders of Judah sitting before me. The hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below him appeared to be, uh, below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north. Where, there, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. So Ezekiel sitting, a captive in Babylon, in his own house, and all of a sudden, he's quite literally dragged by the hair in a vision to the temple in Jerusalem. And he's brought there to where what he sees immediately is an idol, a false image sitting at the gate of the temple. An image that rouses God's jealousy. It's something that's not supposed to be there in the temple. Now, whether what Ezekiel sees over this next few chapters is actually happening in Jerusalem or is a visionary metaphor for the spiritual reality of what's happening, we're not exactly sure. We do know that Israel's main problem that got them in trouble was idolatry, worshiping something other than God, false gods. And we know that that idolatry sometimes infiltrated the temple, that those idols were brought into God's holy place. We also know 
that the temple was supposed to be filled with the glory of the Lord, not with false images. And Ezekiel sees this glory when he gets there. In verse 4, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley, which is an earlier vision he had back in uh, chapters 1 and chapter 3. But then God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, lift your eyes toward the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary? You catch that last phrase there? What Israel is doing, what God's covenant people, whom he saved from slavery in Egypt and chose to be his treasured possession, gave them his law, gave them the tabernacle, gave them the priest so that he could dwell with them and that they could be his people and he would be their God. What they are doing is actually driving God from his temple. He can no longer stand to be around them. So what are they doing? The rest of chapter 8, Ezekiel is taken on a tour of the temple where he witnesses idolatry everywhere he looks. He sees the image of jealousy in the north gate that he saw at first. He sees 70 elders of Israel worshiping graven images in the court of the temple. He sees women worshiping a false god at the gate of the temple. And in the inner court, 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. God's covenant people have forsaken him. They have given their faith and their allegiance, their desire, their obedience. In a word, they have given their worship to things that are not God. Images, idols, abominations, as God puts it in Ezekiel. They practice false worship. But more than that, they freely pursue sin. God continues in 8.17, Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations they commit here in the temple, that they should fill the land with violence? And provoke me still further to anger? False worship isn't their only problem. They practice false living as well. And the reality is that those two always travel together. False worship and false living. Sin and idolatry. Either one might be the first to enter the door. But the other is never far behind. If I am willing to disregard God's word in how I live my life, then my worship will become shallow and self-centered. If my worship becomes shallow and misdirected, my life will eventually bend itself to some other more compelling allegiance. And so God's people have forsaken their God. They have profaned his presence. 
How will God respond? What will God say looking out on all of this idolatry in the place that was set apart for him? He tells Ezekiel in chapter 8, verse 18, Therefore I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. And what follows is God's judgment on his people, prophetically described in two ways. In chapter 9, God will destroy the idolaters. And in chapter 10 through 11, he will depart from his temple. He will deal with their idolatry by destroying the idolaters and departing from his temple. Chapter 9 is where we met this man clothed in linen that we heard about uh, when we read chapter 10 a little bit ago. His first job in chapter 9 is to go throughout the city and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who, quote, sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in the city. Those whose hearts are broken over Israel's idolatry and sin. The faithful people who haven't given their hearts to a false god. And and those who receive this mark will be spared from the executioners that God is sending through the city, beginning with the sanctuary. God is going to destroy the idolaters. But he's also going to depart from his temple. And that's what we see in chapter 10 that we read earlier. And that chapter divides kind of into two sections. In verses 1 through 8, we see this same man who in chapter 9 went around putting the mark. In chapter 10, instead he is told to approach the throne of God and fill his hands with burning coals from within the throne and then scatter those over the city. It's another picture of judgment. And the point there is that God's judgment is coming from God's throne. God is the one decreeing this. It may eventually be Babylon who wields the sword to destroy Jerusalem, but the decree comes from God's throne. It is his righteous decree to act in wrath toward Israel's idolatry. But there's something else that dominates the scene in chapter 10, and it's this strange vision of cherubs and flying wheels and Whatever else was happening in there, in that, in that wild description, these four wheels under the cherubs that, that Ezekiel says looks like a throne. Uh, most of the chapter is kind of taken up by describing this throne type thing, this chariot-like throne, uh, first with respect to the man who takes the coals from it, and then with respect to the glory of God that rides upon it in verses 9 through 22. And this is one of the reasons that we have a hard time in Ezekiel. What is he talking about here? What is he describing? It's not the first time that Ezekiel has seen this vision. Uh, He tells us that these are the same creatures he saw back in chapter 1 with the very first vision in the book when he was by the Kibar Canal. Although when he first saw it, he had even less of a clue what he was actually seeing. Uh, He searched for words to try and, and they were elusive. Now things are beginning to become a little bit clearer. He realizes that the living creatures he saw at first, that these were, were 
cherubim. He, he hadn't placed them before, but he sees that they're cherubim. And it kind of dawns on him here that what he's seeing are the heavenly realities of God's glorious presence in the temple. So remember that the temple and the tabernacle were copies of the true things, as Hebrews puts it. They were the, the temple and tabernacle on earth were designed after a pattern of God's hidden, invisible temple in heaven. And they were meant to correspond with each other. And so in the earthly temple, there were four statues of cherubim in the Holy of Holies. This is a, an artist's depiction of what the Holy of Holies, that, that back room, might have looked like. And you have four cherubim in that temple, two over top of the ark with their wings spread out, uh, and two statues alongside the ark also with their wings spread out touching each other. And the wings formed a kind of throne for God's presence. And in fact, throughout the Psalms, God is often described as the one who rides upon the cherubim or the one who is enthroned upon the cherubim, these heavenly creatures. What Ezekiel sees here are the living heavenly realities that these static sculptures represent in the Holy, in the Holy of Holies. And so the statues on earth correspond to actual heavenly creatures in heaven and Ezekiel seeing the real thing in his vision. He's seeing a a picture of the glory of God's presence that dwells in the temple. That's a pretty shocking vision. But perhaps the most shocking part of what he sees, though, is that the glory of God is on the move. God's glory isn't just static in that holy place. It's on the move. It isn't staying there. In verse 4, it moves from the threshold It moves to the threshold of the temple. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, the the, the entry. And the house was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. The glory is on the move. Then in verses 18 to 19, it moves to the gate of the temple. The glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them. God's glory is on the move. And then finally, in verses 11 to, uh, chapter 11, verses 22 to 23, it moves to the edge of the city. Then the cherubim lifted their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. God is leaving his temple. That's what what Ezekiel is seeing. Because of Israel's idolatry, God no longer dwells with his people. He has moved out. He has abandoned his temple, which means that even though all of the furnishings, the the lampstands and the wash basins and the altars, all that stuff's still there, it's an empty building. Not because there's nothing in it, but because no one lives there anymore. It is an empty temple. Just like what 
makes a house a home is the presence of your family in it. What makes the temple a temple is the presence of God in it. When we practice false worship or freely pursue sin, we forfeit God's presence among us. This is a major turning point in the biblical story. As one author describes it, the departure of the glory signals the end of a relationship that had existed for almost four centuries. The divine king has abandoned his residence. And you would think, as big a deal as this is, that that would bother Israel. That they would feel regret, shame, something. That they would notice his absence or feel sorry for what they've done to drive him away. But instead, they keep on doing the very things that caused him to depart. Offering false worship at the temple, freely pursuing sin in their lives. Even Ezekiel's fellow captives mock him for warning them that the temple is going to be destroyed. They go listen to Ezekiel, not because they want to learn from him, but because he's entertaining with all of his crazy visions. That's what draws them to him. But the temple was going to be destroyed. And, and, and when Nebuchadnezzar came against Jerusalem a third time in 586 B.C., he finished the job. The temple was destroyed. The king was dethroned. The people were deported. Not because Babylon was stronger than God, but because God abandoned his temple and handed his people over for judgment. It was like the Garden of Eden all over again, being driven out from the presence of the Lord, cut off from his glory, which is pretty much the worst possible punishment there is, to be separated from the presence of God. That's how Paul describes hell in Second Thessalonians. This is bad. God wants to dwell with his people. We were made to enjoy un his unmediated presence. But when we practice false worship and freely pursue sin, we forfeit the presence of God. Because God is holy. He is holy and majestic. He is above us and unlike us. He is over us and bigger than us and morally perfect in every way. And therefore, He he cannot allow anything unclean into his holy presence. As Pastor Bruce talked about last week, the only way that, that a sinful people could draw near to God and worship at his temple was on the basis of a sacrifice made for their sins that would cleanse them, offered by a priest. And, and only the high priest was able to go into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, and only once a year, and not without sacrifices for himself and for the people. God's presence is holy. Israel took that for granted. And through their false worship, forfeited that presence. And the sobering reality is that it's pretty easy for us to do the same thing today. We'd like to think it's not. And we may not be tempted to bow down to a statue or, or a carved image or something like that, but we are drawn to false worship all the same. Sometimes it's a misguided heart. So we give our worship to something other than God. 
in the ancient world or, or even in other majority world contexts today, that, that might very well take the shape of bowing down to a statue. But in the Western world today, it more likely takes the shape of money or career or power or sex or fame or family or a cause. As Tim Keller puts it, anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give, that's our idol. So we may go to church, we may do all sorts of religious things, but our real hope is not in Christ, it's in these counterfeit gods that we look to that not only steal God the glory he deserves, but will ultimately let us down. A misguided heart. Sometimes false worship takes the shape of a hollow heart. So we might have the right God, so to speak. We might agree with the right doctrine, but we're just going through the motions. It doesn't really mean anything to us. We're only here because we have to be here. Other, or, or because we think that by performing certain religious activities, we're doing our duty for God. But our heart isn't in it. It's, a, it's hollow. It's, it's like buying flowers for your significant other, uh, not because you want to, but because you have to. You know, you're just going through the motions. It's not really a sign of your affection. It's just your duty. That's hollow. It's empty religiosity. So often what so many of us grow up experiencing when we go through the motions of church apart from true faith in Christ. Sometimes false worship is more half-hearted. So it's apathetic and lazy. We give God our leftovers. We spend our time and our money and our efforts, our energy on ourselves. And if we have anything left at the end of the week, we'll give that to God. It's like when ancient Israel would would look at their flock and they'd see a sheep that's either wounded or sick and say, well, I can't sell that at market. We'll give that one to the Lord at the temple. That's what we do. We have this half-hearted. We're not technically neglecting God, but we're not prioritizing him. We're not putting him first. Similarly, sometimes we have a distracted heart. We want to worship God. We want to give him glory and live our lives for him but our minds and our hearts wander. We're distracted by the things of the world, by worries and problems and anxieties in life. We're distracted by what others are, might be thinking about us. So, you know, if you think about it, how often when we're praying or when we're singing, whether you're at home praying by yourself or here together in their church, how often does your mind wander during prayer or during a song? You know, we're, we're supposed to be making much of God in song, and instead I'm thinking about the football game this afternoon, or Monday morning, or what other people might be thinking of me right now, or whether that person over there is actually worshiping or thinking about something else. You know, we get distracted. But more often than not, false worship sneaks its way in through a divided heart. We compartmentalize our lives. We build a wall between the part of my life that's for God 
and then the parts of my life that are for me or something else. And there becomes this huge disconnect between how I worship on Sunday and how I live Monday through Saturday. I tolerate sin, selfishness, greed in my life, and then I think God will be pleased with my singing Sunday morning. Or I have a hard time connecting with God in gathered worship, and that surprises me, even though I haven't been connecting with Him all week long. We forget that all of life is to be an act of worship to God, whether we're gathered or scattered. And everything we do, we're called to do in service to the king. And so all of us, every single one of us, in big ways and small ways, we're all guilty of false worship. I am guilty of every single thing on that list. My heart is so often a mess of selfishness and and distraction and self-righteousness. And I'm pretty sure I'm not alone. There's not a single one of us who left to themselves is worthy to enter into the presence of God. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Many of us have memorized that verse and that last part there, fall short of the glory of God. We don't often think about what that means, but we're un, we, we, we fail to reflect God's glory and we're unworthy to enter his glory. We're unworthy to come into his presence. Our sin hides God's face from us. It drives his presence away. Our false worship and false living forfeit the presence of God. Which is really bad news. I mean, if this is the case, who can stand? Who, who can enter God's presence? That's actually Ezekiel's question in this very vision. Twice he cries out as he's watching God's judgment unfold. Will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? If this is the case, who could ever enter your presence? We're all done for. But God answers Ezekiel's cry with a promise. Right in the same vision, chapter 11, verses 14 to 21. Verse 16, he says, Thus says the Lord God, Though I removed them far off among the nations, though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. The temple in Jerusalem may be empty, but God is still dwelling with his people. Verse 17, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you've been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. God promises a new exodus, just like the last one where he's going to bring them back into the land. And then he promises a new worship, a new heart, and a new covenant. Verse 18, and when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them that they might truly worship God. And I and they will be my people and I will be their God. God promises, even though they are utterly unworthy, 
God promises to be faithful to his covenant, which means dealing mercifully with his people. His vision for creation, the vision we looked at a couple weeks ago, that God, God's people would be in God's place under his rule, enjoying his blessing for the sake of his glory, that vision will come true. God will make good on his promises. He will fulfill everything he said to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to Moses, Samuel, and David. He will get the glory due his name. This isn't the end, even though this is the lowest part of the story. And as Ezekiel unfolds, we learn a little bit about how that's going to happen. The repeated promise of a new heart, a new spirit, a new covenant, a vision of a new temple at the end of the book where God's glory will once again fill it and he will once again be in the midst of his people and they will come in and worship him. And it's this beautiful picture of what's to come. And when Israel is finally allowed to go back to their land, they do, in fact, rebuild a temple. Although those who remember the first one weep because of, compared to the first one, this new one is just mediocre. And even though God promises to fill this new temple with his glory, we never actually see it in the story. And when you get to the end of the Old Testament, you're kind of left wondering whether the promise that Ezekiel has made, that God will return to his temple to fill it with his glory, whether that promise has actually yet been fulfilled. Until one day, when the Son of God, the one whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily, as Colossians puts it, is born in a manger. Emmanuel. God with us. God with us dwelling in the midst of his people again. And at the climax of Jesus' ministry, he even stands on the Mount of Olives, the mountain east of the city, the same mountain by which the glory departed and the same mountain by which it would return, according to Zechariah. Jesus stands on that mountain and enters the city on Palm Sunday and goes to the temple. God returns to his empty house, not to restore it, but to condemn it and replace it because the true temple has come, Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about that next week. But there is only one worthy to enter the presence of God, only one son whose worship is actually acceptable to God. One person who is at the same time the temple and the priest and the sacrifice. Who is able to cleanse us from our sin and take our unworthy worship and make it acceptable to God. If we will turn away from sin and trust in him as our savior and king. Because worship matters. Worship matters. We were made for worship. We were made to make much of God, to enjoy his presence and serve him as priests. It matters who we worship. There's only one God worthy of it. And he has made himself known to us by his spirit in the face of Jesus Christ. It matters who we worship. It matters how we worship. With whole hearts, 
not going through the motions or giving God the leftovers or compartmentalizing our lives so that part of this is for God and the rest of it's for me. It matters how we worship and it matters why we worship. Not in order to be accepted by God, but because we have been accepted by God through faith in Christ. We don't come here in order to make up for what we've done wrong. We don't come here in order to put the pieces of our lives back together so God might actually accept us. We come here to worship Him because through faith in Christ we are accepted. Because His blood cleanses us. His identity is our identity. He makes us new. We worship. It matters why we worship. Not in order to gain acceptance because we are accepted through faith in Christ. More than anything, it matters that we worship God on God's terms and not ours. False worship forfeits His presence. True worship is centered on Christ, dependent on His Spirit, anchored in His Word, expressed in every part of life, and aimed at the Father's glory above all else. It's about Him, not about us. And it's all made possible by Christ. Hebrews describes it like this. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, the heavenly temple that Ezekiel saw, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. From dead works, false worship, to serve the living God. True worship. True worship is made possible by Christ. He makes God's presence accessible even to sinners like us. So may we come to God on God's terms, by His Spirit, through faith in His Son, to the glory of His name, and find our joy in His presence this Christmas. Let's pray. Gracious Father, who is like you? Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Majestic in holiness, doing awesome deeds. Lord, you are inapproachable in your glory, and yet you have chosen by your grace to dwell with your people. Lord, we confess that we have taken that for granted. We confess that we make little of the incredible privilege of your presence in our daily lives, in our gathered worship. Lord, forgive us. May our hearts be fixed on you.
May they be whole. May they be made whole by your Son. And may we worship you with true hearts, by your grace, knowing that it's not what we have to offer, but it's what you have done for us that makes us presentable to you. We praise you for your love and your mercy, and we pray that you would receive the glory you deserve in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.